Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the brilliant Oliver Berkman, author of the New York Times bestselling 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. There seems to be this basic idea that if you make a, a system, including a human life, more efficient, capable of processing more inputs, to put it in like abstract general terms, well, if that supply of inputs is infinite, all that's going to happen is that you attract more of them into the system and you end up busier, right? This is Parkinson's law. It's induced demand where the way when they widen freeways to ease the congestion, it makes the route more appealing to more drivers. So more cars come and fill the lane and then it, the congestion gets back to what it was before. There's all these different ways in which like trying to get on top of something that you can't actually get on top of is is futile and technology seems to offer those that promise and of course it does help us do lots and lots of really useful things but it doesn't help us get to the state of peace of mind with respect to our limited natures right it's never going to it's never going to break through that that barrier so says oliver berkman feature writer for the guardian and the new york times best-selling author of four thousand weeks time management for mortals a book which delivers practical self-help through the lens of philosophical reflection as Berkman questions the modern fixation on getting everything done. We are finite material creatures who only live so long, about 4,000 weeks, Berkman tells us, yet we are obsessed with cramming more and more stuff into our days, aided by time-saving technologies that give us the illusion of transcending the ultimate limitation, our own mortality. Our culture has led us to believe that if we just became more efficient, we could optimize our lives enough to bring about greater happiness. But in an era where busyness has become a virtue, our attempts to drive efficiency ultimately don't yield more time for the meaningful stuff, but rather heighten our sense of anxious hurry as we face and are expected to process an incessant stream of inputs. We can only begin to build toward a meaningful life when we embrace our finitude, he advises us. Rather than searching out shortcuts to arrive at our cosmically significant life purpose faster, Berkman tells us to ride the metaphorical bus, allowing ourselves to learn and develop at all the stops along the way. The universe is not depending on us to maximize our time, he says, and when we fall victim to the siren's call of efficiency culture to avoid the annoying parts of life, 
we miss out on a whole bunch of the meaningful stuff, too. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Well, I am so pleased to talk to you. Thank you for saying yes. And I read your book, actually read your book a while ago. I read it over Thanksgiving at the my brother, who's a book editor, pressed it into my hands. So for him to also extol a book that's not his, he never gives me recommendations, but he was oh, brilliant. very insistent that I read your book and that your book was great. So high praise from someone who is hard to please. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear it. Yeah. And I feel like the people who talk to me about your book are all people I respect. So clearly you found your audience. Uh, I'm really happy to hear it. Yeah. It's been, it's been amazing watching it sort of land with people and resonate much more than I ever expected. So it's, it's great to know that other people are screwed up in a similar way to oneself, you know, when it comes to these issues of time and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's so simple, right? This overarching conceit of like, actually, you can number your days. Like you can even use an actuarial table and probably figure out pretty accurately how many, in your case, weeks or how many how many weekends you have with your kids. And yet we're also loath to do it, in part because it's, it's knowable. Why yeah. do you think we have that aversion? Well, I mean, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because yes, you can make a good guess, but you also can't ever really really know what we can know is that it's finite and you can know that it's uh, in any given case you know weekends with your kids or something you can know that it's a lot fewer than you would ever choose if you had any any say in the matter so i mean you know ultimately it's just that we don't want to accept that we're finite and that we're going to die we can't get our minds around around that idea but i think that sort of on a on a more day-to-day basis there is this kind of it feels uncomfortable to confront these facts because all sorts of kind of responsibilities feel like they come with them, right? So if, you, if you've only got so much time, then it's on you to make the, the most of that time and you might not be making the most of it right now and it really matters what you choose to do as against other things. What I hope I'm getting at, at least by the end of this book, is that this kind of stepping into the truth of the matter is it's uncomfortable but it's not a recipe for sort of panic or doesn't need to be a recipe for panic or for you know the message of this book is not life is really short so like freak out every day trying to fill your days with really memorable things like that is not the the message that i want to deliver it's something much more like you know why don't we just live at the human scale that we that we have been gifted to live rather than making ourselves miserable and busier and less present and all the rest of it by trying to escape that this this truth so i yeah the 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 title accept for partly for commercial reasons might might be slightly startling or panic inducing of the book four thousand weeks but i hope the thing i'm trying to say about time is is a relief ultimately yeah well i love what you just said the human scale of it because And I loved how the book sort of ventured from this idea of maximizing, which I want to drill into, Mm -hmm. and this like terrible cultural productivity that we really are enslaved to. And then the way at the end, you sort of make the point. And I think, you know, this is the week that the Webb telescope images Mm -hmm. emerged. It doesn't really matter. Like the universe is not depending on each of us to maximize our time like there is this human scale that we seem to miss and so we'll we'll take people 
on that range. But so let's start at let's start at the beginning. I loved the, the sort of your conversation, the extended conversation around technology and John Maynard Keynes being like this idea originally that all this technology was supposed to liberate us for mm-hmm. leisure, right? Like that was the promise, not yeah. work more, but yeah. actually we could winnow it down to 15 hours of week of work a week. And yet we have managed to expand expectations in a ballooning way. What do you think that that is? Is that just what it is to be human? I mean, I think ultimately this comes down to a sort of a, the human condition, I, I think capitalism, consumerism, all sorts of industrialization, all sorts of forces sort of piggyback on it and make it worse. But I guess that the way to think about it, I would say, is just this, yeah, we start with this basic situation that we are finite material creatures who will only live so long, can only do so much, can only pay attention to so much at a time. All these limitations define us as as animals. But probably uniquely among the animals, we're capable of sort of conceiving of limitless things and infinite things. We're capable of wanting to do far more with our time than we ever could do or feeling more social obligations than a person ever could reasonably fulfill or, you know, everything like that. So we use technology, at least in some ways in which we use technology, to try to sort of get our arms further and further around these things, the, the, the obligations we feel, the things we want to do, the, the comforts we want to have in our lives, whatever it is, to sort of extend our reach as these material beings. But the supply of those things is, is infinite. The supply of demands other people can make, ambitions you can have, emails you can receive, there's no limit to those. So technology that's designed to help you get your arms around more of them will never help you, will never cause you to, to get to the end of them. And so one of the arguments I try to go into is that, you know, I think this rears its head in different disciplines under different names, but there seems to be this basic idea that if you make a a system, including a human life, more efficient, capable of processing more inputs, to put it in like abstract general terms, well, if that supply of inputs is infinite, all that's going to happen is that you attract more of them into the system and you end up busier, right? This is Parkinson's law. It's induced demand where the way when they widen freeways to ease the congestion, it makes the route more appealing to more drivers. So more cars come and fill the lane and then the congestion gets back to what it was before. There's all these different ways in which like trying to get on top of something that you can't actually get on top of is, is futile. And technology seems to offer those that promise. And of course, it does help us do lots and lots of really useful things, but it doesn't help us get to the state of peace of mind with respect to our limited natures, right? It's never going to yeah. it's never going to break through that that barrier. Yeah. It's a different scale. You know, at the beginning, you write, consider all the technology intended to help us gain the upper hand over time. By any sane logic, in a world with dishwashers, microwaves, and jet engines, time out to feel more expansive and abundant, thanks to all the hours freed up. But this is nobody's actual experience. Instead, life accelerates and everyone grows more impatient. It's somehow vastly more aggravating to wait two minutes for the microwave than two hours for the oven, or 10 seconds for a slow loading web page versus three days to receive the same information by mail. 
it does, it feels like a mismatch. Like we mm. are living in a way that is not how we're built. And Re as I read that, I laughed because I was like, <laughs> that's me, like refreshing frantically. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think there are different ways you can explain that bizarre phenomenon of how time-saving technologies make you feel like time is more scarce than, than it was before. But I think one simple way to think about it is just that, yeah, they sort of fuel this fantasy we have of becoming gods and transcending our human situation and becoming limitless and ungoverned by limits. Because once you can cook food in two minutes, it starts to seem reasonable that maybe you could cook it the moment you think you'd like some food. It feels like you're very close at that point to being unbound by the human situation. And the, I think the, there's something very interesting, I don't really get into it in the book, but about the sort of the phenomenology, the experience of being online, being in social media spaces or other similar spaces. And, you know, the metaverse is going to send all this into overdrive that feels like limitation doesn't apply. It feels like you can find out information that, about what's happening 4,000 miles away in the blink of an eye. It feels like you can present yourself to be any person you want and no one can ever know how it matches up to your, to your sort of real life self. And so all these things kind of feed this feeling that we're sort of almost there in terms of mm -hmm. escaping the human, but of course we're not. And you still have to sit in traffic or, you know, wait for other people to do things at the speed you know, in their own their own sweet time or whatever it might be. And so all the ways in which you haven't yet transcended that thing become much more frustrating because there's still that like gap left to close between this sort of fantasy of, 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 of being sort of transhuman and the reality. So yeah, I think that that's not the only way to understand it, but like we keep being lured with these ways of making it look like we're, we're almost there, almost able to escape our limitations. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula, 
Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. You know, it's funny. I lived in New York. I was a magazine editor in New York for a decade before I moved to Los Angeles. And I remember the relief that I felt in Los Angeles because of the traffic and that there was suddenly a limiting factor on time, <laughs> right. which I know sounds insane. But in That's New York, there was nothing to stop you. There was no valid excuse from work to drinks to dinner to drinks home. I mean, I had no children and I wasn't married. But there was this compulsion to maximize or fill there was just no reason not to do it and then when you get to LA and you're like well I'm not crossing the 405 at 6 (laughs) p.m like there are all these factors where suddenly I was like I have so much more time by virtue of the fact that I can't actually physically do this I found it very very liberating just that false constraint of traffic not a false constraint a real constraint real constraint Super fascinating and ironic, I guess, that for you, like the trek westwards to the <laughs> American frontier, this whole thing, which is all about the the pursuit of unlimited fortune and unlimited, you know, yeah. beauty of Hollywood stars and all the rest, you know, all that stuff. It's all like off the charts. But actually for you, that was a, that was a move towards limitation. I think Ease. that's great. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But really... You know, you talk you talk in the book about sort of this idea of convenience culture and its seduction that by sort of outsourcing or making all of these annoying things so much faster and simpler, which technology obviously grants us. You don't have to sit and mm-hmm. labor over a sink full of dishes, although I like doing dishes, but that you can do everything and you can do more. Mm-hmm. And then we end up with this overstuffed life where time is moving faster i would presume i don't know i don't know well it depends what depends depends what you mean by time but certainly yes i mean i think the convenience thing it has two related effects one of them exactly as you say is you know makes everything so frictionless that more and more stuff can sort of flood into your life system and and yet you don't as a result of that finish doing things. You don't get to the bottom of any of this, the end of any of this. It's just that you're more rushed and more stressed than you were. This is really easy to see in the case of email, which I go on about a bit at length, you know, right? If you if you answer people's emails at a quicker tempo, then you're going to get more replies from those people at a quicker tempo. You're going to get a reputation for being responsive on email and receive more emails. So, so obviously, you know, utilizing this technology that's supposed to make sending messages easier and more convenient is going to result in you spending much more of your time dealing with those those messages. And then, yeah, I think the other thing is just that we we perpetually end up sort of smoothing away annoying bits of our lives and then end up losing valuable bits of our lives at the, at the same time. And so, you know, the yeah. obvious example there, if you're the kind of person like, 
I was when I was writing this book, who sort of works from home and stays at home and often doesn't see anybody for hours in a day. It's not actually, it's not actually all a good thing to be able to order delivery food without ever interacting with a human being. You know, there's that, that you think it is because it's like, oh, I don't want to, can't face having to actually have a conversation with somebody, but then you lose one of those little interactions that actually can, to a sort of alarming extent, can kind of keep you sane and connected for the day. So that's just one example. But I think there's lots of those where we, we smooth away things that actually we, we value, even if we don't realize that we value them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this bigger idea, which is that, which gets twisted, but is still sort of the thesis of our lives. Like the really the only thing we have is time, right? That mm. the thing that has value in our lives is time. And in that way, it becomes, as you call it, instrumentalized. And I thought your your description or your definition of capitalism was one that made so much sense, but it had never occurred to me where you write the mysterious truth that rich people in capitalist economies are often surprisingly miserable. They're very good at instrumentalizing their time for the purpose of generating wealth for themselves. That's the definition of being successful in a capitalist world. But in focusing so hard on instrumentalizing their time, they end up treating their lives in the present moment as nothing but a vehicle in which to travel toward a future state of happiness. And so their days are sapped of meaning, even as their bank balances increase. I thought that was so beautiful because I think we're so collectively trapped in that as a myth, right? And there's such a myth around wealth. And of course, like, I get it, being wealthy makes life fundamentally easier, safer in many ways, but that somehow it delivers you to something else is a... I think a terrible cultural myth. Yeah, I think you know, one of the things that really struck me reading into that area when I was writing the book is, you know, it's a bit of a cliche to say that money doesn't bring happiness. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what annual income is the threshold for that, right? And there's all sorts of arguments about, you know, there's a certain amount of money that actually more money does make you happier. And then it seems but it's to like, stop. But isn't it like for an individual, it's like $90,000, which is considerable but after that happiness dwindles it's like and if you're below 55 you right it's it's actually now it's it's around it's in those zones so it's like yes every every millionaire in america is like is like streets beyond that 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 level and and plenty of you know people who today merely count as sort of upper middle class are long long beyond that level but it is really contested some people say that 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 research doesn't show that etc etc what i thought was so interesting was in some sense, it's not even the fact that you're doing everything for money that is the problem here. It's just the fact that you're doing everything for something other than itself. And mm. there are particular issues attached to doing that for for money. But it's this notion that, you know, even somebody who spurns the idea of being wealthy because they're, they think it's not virtuous or whatever, but is still spending their whole life heading towards some future time when they're going to be able to relax or they're going to have got their lives in working order or figured everything out. They're still in that, that mindset of everything is for something else. And of course we like, we have to do that, right? You can't, you, if you don't, the, the reason that you put your clothes in the washing machine and turn it on is, is because you are doing that in order to get an end result. It's not that you can't 
you can live non-instrumentally completely. It's just that sort of total investment in the idea that that time's value only comes from what it's leading up to. And obviously, if that is everything you do, and then eventually your time just stops, like there's never been a moment in your life when it was, when the payoff came, you know, when the thing you were doing it for arrived. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, going back to that idea of like what you, wanting what you do to matter in some future distant state, you know, as a fellow book writer or content, you know, it's like, it's this, so many people, there's a delusion in writing a book if you think that you're writing it with the hope of having a successful book like yours, right? Like, that's very hard to do. Chances are when you write a book, very few people will read it. Mm-hmm. And if there's no value in the process, if like the the act of writing it in of itself is not what matters to you, yeah. if you're writing it for some future hope of success, I mean, books and money is a joke. I mean, it's such an, a hard, anemic business. But like, people still get lulled into that, right? And you can apply it to almost any industry. So whether it's money or acclaim or influence, we're all seduced by it. Yeah, and yet and that's a terrible, scary future state promise. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to make people feel bad for having that element in their motivational setup. It's very human. And I don't, and I think it could be motivating to a certain extent. I really wanted to target in the book the way that that seems to just squeeze everything else out. So as you say, exactly. It's, it's, if, if that is why you're doing it, then, then you're sort of, that is the only reason that you're doing it and, or, or that sort of takes over as the only reason why you're doing it, then, then you, you just miss out on, on your life. And I think about this quite a lot in the context of writing, because I feel very deeply like it is a sort of a vocation type thing with me. I've always done it since I was really young. I I'm sort of, I'm not as pleasant a person to know if I don't get to do it for a couple of weeks and things like that. Right. It's very central to, 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 to who I am, even though that can sound a bit pretentious, but on the other hand, do I enjoy it in the moment of doing it? I think for a lot of the time I don't. A lot of the time it just feels feels hard and 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 unpleasant. So it's very easy in those circumstances to to sort of choose the the more pleasant fantasy of like, well, the reason I'm doing this is because it's going to bring about everything I want to have brought about in my life. There's actually something very nourishing about the hardness, I think, of writing. It's hard to get my, I'm sure this applies to other things too, that it's, it's some, the move I'm talking about here is something to do with like coming to terms with the fact that important things, things that matter to you feel difficult and then sort of enjoying the, the difficulty rather than, as you say, constantly trying to account for them on the basis that they're going to lead to future paradise, which, yeah. Yeah. No, to. absolutely. I mean, it's difficult. The resistance that comes up, it's brutal, I mm-hmm. think. I don't know if you're ever driven under the blankets in tears. I mean, that's my process or part of my process, unfortunately. Like, it's not just a joyful experience. And yet, <laughs> I can't, I have been laid low by feedback, et cetera. Yeah. And it's brutal. But I can't imagine not doing it. Like, this is what I feel like I'm called to do, and this is how I'm supposed to spend my time. Right, right. And this this feeds into another, it's a different part of the book where I'm talking about this, but it just makes me think, you know, it's not a coincidence that this thing you really care about 
is also so difficult and uncomfortable. It's not just like your bad luck that the thing that the thing that you want to do with your life is unpleasant to do. Like these, this is because I think things that matter to us, doing things that matter to us, bring us into a encounter with our limitations. The stakes are high for you because it's something that matters to you, but you can't know that it'll be well received. You can't know that you have what it takes to do it or that you have enough time to meet the deadline, all these things. So in that world of like the stakes are high and I don't can't control the future and this really matters, things that you don't care about are much more relaxing because like it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter. So yeah. that that is why I think one of the main reasons why we sort of we want to distract ourselves. We want to give in to you sit down thinking you want to write a chapter and turns out what you actually want to do is scroll through social media because then you're in this world where you don't have to think about the fact that you've only got a bit of time and you're trying to do something that that might work out. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift. And over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I want to talk about originality because I loved that, the story of the bus. But before we get to that, I just want to just linger for a minute about the instrumentalization of time because I think it's so Mm. important. And this idea, as you write, that We treat everything we're doing, life itself, in other words, as valuable only insofar as it lays the groundwork for something else. And sort of detaching from that, like you you talk about 
Krishnamurti saying, like, I don't mind what happens, mm-hmm. but that detachment from future states so that we can live in the present. Do you feel, having wrestled with this for I don't know how many years, but it's any book you write is, what, five years of your life minimum? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like having a new conscious awareness of like of being in the moment with that struggle or with time. I mean, like you're doing it on a meta level, right? Like you're writing about this construct of time and and creating something for the future while doing it in the present. Mm-hmm. Did that change? Does it, did it change how you live? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely been a slow ongoing process of change for me and a work in progress. It's not a sort of lightning bolt and then everything changes. I do describe a sort of a lightning bolt moment in the book on an intellectual level when I was sitting on a park bench in Brooklyn and suddenly realized that all the things I was trying to get done by the end of the day were just completely impossible and how, what a relief it was to realize that like that was just was just beyond possibility and then and I didn't need to beat myself up for not being able to do it and struggle to find a, a, a way to try to be able to do it because it wasn't possible. So that was a sort of confrontation with finitude that did change me in a in a sudden way but no yeah mainly it's just that sort of drops of water eroding a a stone or or whatever one of the things i find is that i still do get into sort of anxious ruts of thinking that like the stakes are incredibly high and i've got to get something right and i've got to fit something in or it's all terrible but i'm much quicker now that I like realize I'm doing that, that thing. And remember that, you know, in almost every case that it happens, the stakes are not high and it, and it doesn't yeah. matter. And, and uh, <laughs> there is, there is more enjoyment to be had in the, in the present. There's more meaning to be found in the present moment. I also think, you know, we can talk about parenthood or not. It's some people are, people who are parents are obsessed with it and people who are not parents are really annoyed to have to listen to long conversations about it. But I became a father just after getting started with this book and then had to put it on pause for a good couple of years at least and i think there are certainly ways in which that experience sort of brings an awful lot of this not so much that it's a completely different experience from what people have who are not parents but that it makes a lot of universal truths much harder to ignore about the limitations of time and the fact that everything is changing all the time and and that what relationships really benefit from is just you're actually being present rather than you're figuring out the right way to do the relationship and things like that Right. That that a child's life is simply to be a child and not even though we think of it as like, again, something to instrumentalize, like child's job is to grow up and you write about it as like, no, actually, child's Right. Child's it's very easy. It's child. very easy. Yes. It's very easy to slip into that mindset that what you're doing as a parent is trying to create the right future adult. And, you know, you do have to give some thought to that. But But they kind of do it on their own. But they kind of do it on their own. And if you give too much thought to it, then you poorly serve that that yeah. goal and you miss out on the whole relationship. So, yeah. 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 No, certainly. I mean, my kids are older than yours, but when they were, when my first child was a baby and then you get that app that like indicates that they're going through a phase and you're like, oh, wow, this is like coded <laughs> into who they are naturally, right? Yeah, like, yeah. they're just going to do this. Like, yeah. they're going to walk and they're going to yeah. talk. And like, I don't, there's no, you're reminded that 
you're important, obviously essential to their existence and yet not important at all. Like this is how nature is programmed. Yes. And that your job is, yeah, your job is to be there and water the plants as it were, rather than to figure out the, uh, the <laughs> to strategy. To make them grow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Do you feel, so I'm one of, I'm writing a book and one of the things I'm writing about is sloth and women. And you talked about it as this being a heartbreaking you were talking about the labor, the labor mills in Massachusetts back in the 19th century. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a lovely quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Oh, it's such a lovely quote. Do you remember it or do you want me to read? No, you read around? it. <laughs> I'll, okay. get, I'll get it so wrong. So you were talking I... about how this work week was then engineered to support theoretically rest for mm -hmm. labor, right? And that's yeah. sort of how we think about it. And so you write, but there's something heartbreaking about the 19th century Massachusetts textile workers who told one survey researcher what they actually longed to do with more free time to, quote unquote, look around to see what is going on. I don't know why that moves me so much, but it still does. Yeah, absolutely. It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's this like automation or this idea that we're machines really, and that we should be resting to work rather than resting that with no instrumental value, just right. resting. Yeah. And so you end up with this very strange situation where we sort of condemn as wasted time or idleness, maybe sloth. I don't know. That's a fascinating um, way of thinking about it. You know, pre precisely anything that doesn't serve future purposes. In other words, precisely anything that brings us fully into the presence of the moment. So it's like, Everything that isn't wasting time counts as wasting time. Yeah. And everything that counts as not wasting time is kind of wasteful of our present moment experience. It's, it's, yeah. it's a strange Seriously. situation. It's a paradox. Yeah. 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 All right. I want to go back and pick up that thread around originality and the process of any creative or artistic adventure. And it was Arno, it was a Finnish photographer right arno minikin minkin and yeah who, i think he's i think he's american finnish origin okay yeah 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 can you talk about sort of like his instruction for students and this idea that originality lies on the far side of unoriginality sure yeah he tells this story which i guess i'll just try to summarize it's the it he, he compares he uses the analogy of the the bus network in helsinki capital finland which is in his telling has this situation where all sorts of bus routes start from the same platform at the bus station. And for the first few stops, they, they go to the same stops as each other. And he says like, imagine that each bus stop is like a year in your career as a photographer. And you ride on the bus for a year, you collect a, a bunch of, you do a bunch of work, you do a bunch of photographs and you take them to a gallery and the gallery, the person at the gallery doesn't like them because they just, totally derivative of some famous other photographer. So you go back to the bus station and you get on a different bus line and you do a different kind of photography. You go off in a different direction, different kind of approach. And the same thing happens after a, after a year or one bus stop. It's hard to keep track of this analogy. You get told that, no, this was also derivative work. It's too much like somebody, some other uh, famous established photographer. So you go back to the bus station, you do the same thing again. And his point is that we're, you know, what we don't realize is that in those early stages of a career, you're going to be stopping at the same bus stops as other people have stopped at before, because they are the, they are the stages of going through creative sort of 
maturation, the, the thing you need to know is that after the first few stops, all these different lines in the Helsinki bus system branch off into new original places and they go off to individual destinations that, that, that no other bus route goes to. So the moral of the story is that you have to stay on the fucking bus, right? You need the patience through that phase in your creativity. I think it probably applies to other to sort of things that we don't think of as creativity as well, where you are sort of producing things that are a bit like other people's, or it feels like you're just doing the common thing. You're not, you're not sort of distinguishing yourself in some unique way in order to get to the originality that, that lies on the, on the far side of, yeah. of unoriginality. It's a little bit related to that very famous quote that goes around from Ira Glass, the radio host and producer about how in the early days of people making radio, they, they think it's terrible because their taste is really well developed, but their abilities are running behind their taste. So they're actually judging themselves more harshly than they, than they, than they should. You just sort of go, you have the patience to go through that phase where you're, where you're figuring out what it is. And I don't think that's just on the level of a career and being young. I think it's also like, it's in the early stages of any project as well. I think it sort of yeah. recapitulates well, the whole, the whole thing once again. So like, even if I'm writing an email newsletter or something, quite often I'm like, these notes don't seem like something I haven't written before or something that hasn't been said before. And the answer is not to start again. The answer is to keep developing them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that it's not a waste of time, right? Like I think we're, we're also, we get one fixated on time as this finite, valuable thing that has to be maximized. Yeah. And then we become extremely fearful of quote unquote, wasting it. Yeah. And we start searching out shortcuts or yeah. ideas that we can maximize it or get there faster. Should we should be farther along. It all becomes very distorted in the same way. Like, and, and this, I love the, I love that idea of like, you stay on the fucking bus because you think about any trade too, that requires mastery, science, medicine, like you don't skip med school. You don't skip your residency. Right, like you, right. yeah. you know, like this is what it is to learn. This yeah. is what it is to develop. And and then you move, then you can move the profession forward. You can create patents. You can re-engineer surgeries for better outcomes. I think it even applies to things like, you know, as I say in the book, things like friendships and relationships that there's often a it's maybe not quite the identical point, but there's often this kind of pressure to do the unconventional thing, to not stay in your hometown, to not get married fairly young. You know, at least these days, there's a strong pressure to be like, to be remarkable. And there's an argument. I, I didn't follow it in terms of either staying in my hometown or getting married young, but I think there is an argument that that's a similar process, right? It's like if you've, if you've got the willingness to actually do something that it seems a bit conventional, that can be the path to feeling deeply embedded in a place or getting to the stage in a long-term committed relationship where it is remarkable and unique in, it, in itself. So it, there's more of a sort of a, there's, it, there's a sort of broader point here about like not feeling that you have to do something out of the ordinary necessarily to, as on the path to your sort of deep, unique contribution and experience, yeah. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation, he wants to talk. 
to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. I think about my own career, and I'm more, I'm certain, Oliver, I'm more woo-woo than you are, but (laughs) that you can look back at sort of your trajectory and where you've gone and walked and moments where you're like, this feels backwards or like not exciting or not glamorous and recognize like, well, I learned critical skills there. I met like invaluable people. I would never have that perspective in a way that only, again, hindsight is 20-20, but like if you have a little bit more faith and mm-hmm. patience, pa- difference between patience and waiting, patience being having no expectations that you're of, of where you're going, sometimes you end up exactly where you need to be. And and I loved, I thought this was, and, and I believe everyone has their own specific purpose to do into the world. I really do. And I think that everyone's, everyone matters in a significant way. But I loved <laughs> the end where you talk about sort of the grandiosity of people's grandiosity and and this belief that each of us has some cosmically significant life purpose, I'm quoting mm-hmm. you, which the universe is longing for us to uncover and then to fulfill, which is why it's useful to begin this last stage of our journey with a blunt but unexpectedly liberating truth that what you do with your life doesn't matter all that much. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to how you're using your finite time, the universe absolutely could not care less. So I'm, I'm like, I might push on you, but I think it's, that's yep. a grounding principle that I think is also important. Like everyone calm down, right? You call it's the egocentricity bias. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm, I definitely think that this idea of how insignificant each of us is and the universe not caring, I think it's, it's true. And it's an important sort of corrective to that sort of 
notion that the whole of history was leading up to your life. My birth, I, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that that means the inverse is untrue, right? I'm not sure that, I think there's something very interesting in the idea that like, there's, well, there's something very true, isn't there, about the idea that like, none of us are special and all of us are special. And that is That's not- That's what I believe. Right, that is not just a like, facetious paradoxical statement there's there's a there's a there's something very true in that we're not we're we're all special but we're not special we're not special in virtue of being special because everyone is special mm -hmm. and i think that's part of what i'm sort of hoping to do in that section is i think is to say that actually if you can let go of this burdensome notion that you're supposed to like stand out from everybody else and live a life that is exceptional in the sense of most people don't try to live that kind of life, but you did great. You know, if you can let go of that a bit, it actually enables you to embrace the, the real sense in which you're special, right? Because it, it may be for some people that, that fame or, or doing things that affect millions of people or launching companies that change everything in an industry or something, that might be their thing, but you can absolutely be be doing your special, unique thing in in some way that is much more. I mean, I'm sure you agree with this from what you said, but like you know, it's much more obscure, or much more looks like looks like something normal and unremarkable to the mm -hmm. to the to the world of you know fame and social media and social comparison and all the rest of it. And if you're going through life thinking like a meaning, meaningfulness in life requires that I do like unusual things, then you actually rule out from being meaningful, all sorts of things that you might be doing or might want to do. And as a society, right, we come to sort of hugely devalue things that are absolutely critical and meaningful and important and just don't happen to be noteworthy because yeah. people have been doing them for centuries and millennia and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's why we're having a meaning crisis because people assume that an only, the only life worth living or the life that has the most value is the one where you're going out to change the world, which is such a, in some ways, insane idea. And I think that we're collectively need a right-sizing or human scaling back mm -hmm. to really the only thing that you can do is change yourself, change your relationships. You can be a more compassionate, loving, present parent. And that's really like, that's where the ripple, that's where the ripple that changes the world comes from. It doesn't come from changing systems of law. I mean, certainly for some people, sure. But like, I think we all know anyone who's had sort of that brush of, of, of scaled success, right? Where you're like, mm -hmm. wow, I did something that affected people. That's momentary, right? It's not, it doesn't feed your soul in, in perpetuity. Yeah, no. And I've certainly, you know, I mean, this book has done well, but books doing well is not, it's not like a multi-million person phenomenon, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but it has sort of, I do get a little bit of a sense of that sort of scale of things and it's just like there's just no question that it is individual contacts with individual people who've who've found something resonant in there that it is what makes it 
that makes my day, right? I mean, a sales number doesn't really do that, but a, but a, but an email from somebody who, for whom what something I've written sort of plays into where they're at in their lives in a helpful or useful way. That's like, I'll think about that for ages. And yeah, absolutely. I think it does ultimately come down to those those individual contacts. It's not that there's anything wrong with being the person who becomes a prominent activist and changes leads a massive change in the laws. It's it's the there's something wrong with the definition of meaning that places that as the the canonical form of a meaningful yeah life. And of course, you know, I, this, this is a cliche, but the but the people who that we think of as the greatest paragons of doing those things at scale, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, like in their writings and their speeches and their modeling their lives, they absolutely didn't promote any notion that like everyone has to be really unusual or extraordinary or like that, that's not, that's not what the, the essence of those people's messages is. It's just happened to be that, you know, history placed them at the vanguard of those of those things and they they rose to the to the moment but it's not you know the people who are doing that out of the best intentions don't don't believe that like everybody's universe cosmic purpose is to change the world for millions of people that's not that's not the point at all no not at all but it's interesting it's like that paradox of no one is special and everyone is special, which is exactly this need, this very human need to rank ourselves or compare ourselves, particularly at moments in time. And it's like, yeah. you kind of need a longer snapshot. It's also that that Jewish teaching story about the two pieces of paper in two pockets. You know that? You know what I'm talking no, about? Please. I mean, I'm, I'll get it wrong, but there's a there's some famous historical account of a rabbi i think who carried a piece of paper in each of his two pockets one of which said i'm nothing but a speck of dust and the other one says for me the universe was created and it's a question of like holding these two truths together and consulting consulting each piece of paper as a corrective when you're <laughs> when you're too far <laughs> off the other way i'm sure anyone with a deep familiar deep familiarity with me with judaism will will say i've got that wrong somehow but i think i think i'm getting the gist <laughs> yeah well as yeah. my friend and i say about some people, it's like, I'm the biggest piece of shit that the whole world revolves around is common. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the impetus for this book? Like, what was the the question? I mean, I think both this book and the one I wrote some years ago about positive thinking and negative, the benefits of negative thinking, I think you... If you didn't care about any selling any copies of them, you could have I could have called them like you know my my philosophy of life as it as it currently stands. You know, <laughs> just sort of it's like I I don't really know how I could write a book other than just trying to figure out what what it's all about, right? I mean, I, I think it's there are sort of acts of self therapy, and they are the things that are consuming you at that moment and that period in your life and so it's a bit of a cheat because yet if you have to say what this book is about it's about time but like everything is everything happens in time time is time is the medium through which in which everything unfolds so you know once again I think it's just a sort of cunning strategy that I've been following all through my career as a journalist as well to sort of get to remain a, a generalist about things and just sort of 
talk about the meaning of life with sort of, you have to focus it a little bit. Otherwise, otherwise yeah. your books and articles are just called like the meaning of life and that doesn't work, but, yeah. but it's, uh, that's pretty much the agenda. I think really, I mean, in, in this case, it was just like, yeah, this, this feeling of needing to wait until I was sufficiently in control, I felt in control of my life and, and, and of time that I could do everything that was asked of me and not feel emotionally vulnerable. And like just all this, this seeing the illusory nature of that and that actually like entering into life meant confronting these limitations and these sort of inevitable vulnerabilities and all the rest of it. You know, that was, that was what I was going through when this book germinated. So, yeah, well, writing books is painful and wonderful. And it's an amazing <laughs> privilege to yeah. accept in advance also to go and probe the questions, Yeah, you know, the curiosities and the questions that are the, to totally. do the therapy. I think it is, it is a, any book that's not a therapeutic process, like I don't quite understand. Right. It's so probing. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. And I think it's, you know, people occasionally say like, I think you're just writing about the things you struggle with yourself. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. The question is what's going on in the minds of people who write like biographies of Hitler, right? The question is not what's going on in the minds of people who write about <laughs> how can we be a bit happier and saner in, in the world? Like, of course, we're all struggling with that. <laughs> yeah. No, but that it is an interesting question to like give your life four or five years of your life to probing the mind of someone who's very disordered. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So at the end of his book, Oliver writes, You might imagine, moreover, that living with such an unrealistic sense of your own historical importance would make life feel more meaningful by investing your every action with a feeling of cosmic significance, however unwarranted. But what actually happens is that this overvaluing of your existence gives rise to an unrealistic definition of what it would mean to use your finite time well. It sets the bar much too high. It suggests that in order to count as having been well spent, your life needs to involve deeply impressive accomplishments or that it should have a lasting impact on future generations, or at the very least, that it must, in the words of the philosopher Ido Lando, transcend the common and the mundane. Clearly, it can't just be ordinary. After all, if your life is as significant in the scheme of things as you tend to believe, how could you not feel obliged to do something truly remarkable with it. And I love that sentiment, just again, going back and forth from creating the right context, the right human scale for our lives. I think the pressure that we each feel to make such a significant difference isn't always realistic or founded or necessary. I think being good to ourselves, to our loved ones, our children, our communities, that seems to me to be the more admirable place to start. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.